Hey everybody, good evening, hope all is well. This is Ian and Austin again from the History Special of the Avenger Geeks podcast. This is your uh, co-host, Ian. Hey guys, this is Austin, hope you're doing well. Just to give you guys a heads up, my, my brother is uh, in... We're not in the same room tonight. Oh, that came out wrong. We're not... We're not to get... Hmm. We are doing virtual podcasting right now virtual podcasting thank you for some reason I'm out, i was at a loss of words so yeah well i was smarter one yeah screw you delete that <laughs> so we are uh going to be doing this virtually we're doing this through facebook messaging so if he one of us uh seems coming in as clear have to repeat ourselves that's that's why uh, the weather's been held held off for now, but hopefully it stays that way so we have a good connection. So we just wanted to talk to you guys. I mean, first and foremost, uh, it's been a month since we did our last podcast, over a month. A lot's been going on in the U.S. and the world since that time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's affecting all of us, some more than others. And, you know, I just, I, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a good. I don't have a, a good answer about how to fix it. Do you, us, fix all of this? Well, now there's a push for reform, a push for change, and fighting the status quo is never easy. There are some things I agree, some things I don't agree, but that's history. Like the history of the United States has always been for progression and for change. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, it sometimes it doesn't, but it's probably a good way to talk about it. There isn't, and perhaps like the next few weeks we can actually do a, a history podcast on like civil unrest, in particular when it comes to community relations and uh, like law enforcement, because I know that's a, that's a big that's a big controversy right now. It's always been a controversy, but it's just flared up within like the last last month or so. And we, we can and, talk like police misconduct. Yeah, police misconduct, um, officer involved shootings. I know a few. I can't say I know everything, just it's well those things I, I've been looking at. Uh, unfair policing practices in the uh, in in certain communities, Austin, would that be something appropriate we can say? Yes. Yes. It's not like every department does it, but Yes, there are problems. There are problems. Baltimore, when I lived down there, was one of them. Yeah. And unfortunately, we do have verified history behind that, so this this doesn't come out of a vacuum. If anyone is interested, I recommend reading about the Red Summer of 1919, 1920, or just 1919. It's not like 100% the same, but you can see the parallels. Like a pandemic unemployment, um, issues of racial justice, social justice, just like 1919. I know it's bad right now, but the stuff I'm reading back in 1919, like, it was mind-boggling for today's standards, but there's a history. That, that's why there's a lot of still attention going on. I, I, I th- like, before we, we get to our, our main uh, episode, I just want to, you know, my condolences to everyone right now, and I think that we're gonna, when we do our civil civil history civil unrest podcast, where we will we will we will go into more in depth about this. 
Uh, I just feel that we we need to come to an agreement and and change because what we're like the practices that is that are going on right now, it's it's not gonna benefit anybody. No, there needs to be big changes. That's it's gonna be. I'll be upfront. Like change doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen without some form of struggle. Yeah, it it doesn't. So hopefully we hopefully there is a light at the end of this tunnel for for everyone because this. This has been a very, very bad year so far for pretty much everyone in the world. Most of, most of everyone. The same about right, Austin? Yeah, I say that's right. We can talk about Mark of Death on the next podcast, depending on how you want to do it, how you want to research it, how you want to present it and interpret just get the facts out, let the facts be for themselves. That's what I've always been doing. That's a lot of big data, so it'll take some time to get that ready. Yeah, we want to make sure we do this podcast right, so if it takes us a couple of weeks more than usual, just, just please bear with us. But uh, for this podcast, we are doing a... Well, it's more it's modern still, but it's a special on World War II. Anyone who is big into World War II and knows about World War II... Last Monday, I believe, the April, June 22nd, was the 75th anniversary. Am I correct, Oz? Um, let me do the math real quick. I got to use a phone. Okay. I, wa- I, went into, I went into history and didn't go into mathematics. I want to say 75th. I'm assuming it's 75th. Mm, it's just a bit low. It's a bit low? Maybe it's 76? It's 79. 70, wow, Jesus, 79? Holy shit, where, where have I been? Sorry. Okay, right, guys. So last uh, last June twenty second was the seventy ninth anniversary of Operation Barbarossa, and Operation Barbarossa was the German Axis invasion of the Soviet Union in nineteen forty one. This is almost two years since the start of the Second World War in Europe, and a lot of historians and a lot of fans or like readers of World War II consider this to be one of the, like, culminating turning points of the war. Is that something you would agree with, bro? I agree, and add to the point that it's one of the... It's the biggest invasion in human history. You get millions of men mm-hmm. clashing in the steps of Belarusia, Russia, the Ukraine, the Baltic states... From June to December of 1941, it's it's the start of a larger war that will encompass, well, it's already encompassed the whole world, but eventually yeah. the United States and Japan, the most costliest war. Hopefully, we won't have anything costlier, but yes, I'd agree. And I would consider it to be much bigger than the D-Day, which I think is probably the biggest American operation in, a, in American history, military history. I have double the logistics. Uh, maybe Okinawa or Iwo Jima out in the Pacific. Yeah, I'll have to check the logistics. Too. But I think, like, for like the public mind, when we think like invasion, when we think like large armies, a lot of people in America think like D Day, D Day, the storming of the beaches of Normandy. 
Yes, uh, the beaches of Burundi, the flag Canal, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, Pacific. That's coming. I grew up with stuff. It's only been in the last couple of years I really focus on the Eastern Forces. I don't know that much. Uh, we took World War II class association with Alexander Trukhanov mm-hmm. back when we were still at LSC. It's like our first big in-depth look, but you know, for the most part, it's been usually like an Anglo-American focus. So, like for those who haven't heard me before, like the last year, I've been trying to read more on the Eastern Front, World War II, and the Holocaust because those two are tied together. You're doing better than I am, Austin, because I've always been focusing on the British Army in World War II. I'm a big Anglophile, if you haven't noticed. Well, tell you what, how about I get you some books on the uh, Bengal famine in the British Empire? You know, you can read those. Ouch, Austin, that 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 that, that hurt me. <laughs> hey, man, you gotta focus on the bad history as well as the good history. Because focus on the good history, you have a romanticism of the past, like a, like a Demar. I like the. But I like Legends of Marvel from Deep Space Nine. He, he, he became a hero. He's also an alcoholic. Yeah, well, you know, I gotta. Well, I'm drinking a beer right now, so maybe I'm on the right track. At any rate, how do you want to start the podcast off? What do you want to focus on first? I think we should just let our viewers know the background to Barbarossa, the background between the clash of Nazi Germany and Communist Russia, Soviet Union. What led to that culmination? Me personally, I think it starts a lot in like the ending of World War One. Is that something you would agree with, bro? Yes, World War One left a lot of bitter feelings with the Germans. There is this whole myth concept of being stabbed in the back that the German army was not defeated on the field, but was stabbed in the back by the fifth column or the home front. Eventually, that lingers down to it must be like the Jewish, the Jewish Bolshevism, the Judeo-Bolshevism that stabbed the army in the back. One of the big architects mm-hmm. of this myth is uh, Eric von Ludendorff. It's like German chief of staff of World War One. Eventually, he wasn't a von. He wasn't. He wasn't royalty. He was just Eric Ludendorff. Well, he made a big name for himself in the East. Fought in the West. Had this big, massive uh, invasion, this campaign called mm-hmm. the. Uh, the Kaiser's Schlag, the Kaiser's Battles, a big, huge campaigns of the spring of 1918. Ultimately, he was wrong, he made mistakes, he screwed up, but you no, know, to me, he never really admitted those faults. It was always somebody else's fault. I remember that. I, so, remember, I remember talking about that in the uh, 1917 podcast, too. Yeah, so to me, Ludendorff, as well as guys, like, even historically, even with, like, 100 years of hindsight, still think he was a POS because he never had the gall to admit like he screwed up. But to be honest, a lot of generals, like their egos wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. Most famous people in history I know of do not take responsibility for anything, that, any downfall that they have. Yeah. So there's the seven the back myth. There's the economic issues, mm-hmm. the political issues. Um, you've got the Weimar Republic uh, kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to talk about about the Weimar Republic. How much how much time do you want to like talk about like the build up? Uh, just just briefly, just just know like the in the Weimar Republic was what was the legitimate government after the fall of the of the um, of the uh, the Kaiser uh, of Kaiser Wilhelm's government up until Adolf Hitler takes power. It has a lot of problems. They had a lot of economic problems. They had problems paying off like initially paying off like the war debt, which. I've heard back and forth from different people, like historians and economic historians, saying that they could have paid the debt off 
but it would have been uh, like shameful to do it because it would admit that they were wrong. I think Richard Evans talked a bit about that in the coming to the Third Reich. There's also the fact that the U.S. actually took a lot of their debt and helped the Republic for a while. Up until 1929 with the stock market crash. Yes, well, that affected everybody. But like, when the stock market crashed in the United States, that really screwed over the Republic over Germany. It really saw like the hyperinflation. Like, you know, they got had like wheelbarrows of cash just to buy a loaf of bread. Yeah. So that economic turbulence, the, the fear that we weren't really defeated in the field, and like, you know, the allies of like the, the Entente, uh, the other European powers are pushing all the blame onto Germany. That creates a lot of anger and anxiety in the German population. And kind of that vacuum, that maelstrom is where like this guy, Adolf Hitler, he mm-hmm. comes into play. And we, we all know this wrong Adolf Hitler. We won't go into much about Hitler. He, I'm going to quote uh, Takawahiti when he did uh, Jojo Rabbit. I think he called Hitler Hitler. Uh, I can't say it on this. I'm trying. I'm, I'm going to try to like curb my, my swearing a little bit, but he called, basically called him a, a jerk ass. <laughs> he used the c word. Yeah, he used the c word. Yeah, I, I'm going to make a promise to try to curb my, well, my, my language on this uh, on this podcast, make it a little more kid family friendly. So Hitler takes power. What is the big motivator with, like, the Nazis and the East? Why are they? Why are they focusing on the East? Why, why is like the, every all their attention? They say we must go east and and claim this land for the for Germans. Well, a couple of reasons. Um, one of which mm-hmm. is national socialism. In Hitler's mind, their moral enemy is going to be you know communism. Uh, he calls it Judeo-Bolshevism, like all that social revolution out in the East. He does not want that to happen in Germany. In fact, 1917, 1918, more so 1918, like immediately after the war, there mm-hmm. was like this huge fear that communism would take over Germany. Like there were revolutions inside. Yeah. Uh, the German Navy had a revolution in like the port of Kiel because like this, the sailors were starving. And they did not want to go on this death ride, like, you know, we're off into the sunset, fight the Royal Navy to the death. Because they thought that was stupid, like, that's just for the egos of the officers. But a lot of social unrest, and it's not just Germany, like, major European powers like England, France, they were all kind of terrified of, like, the, um... The Bolshevik like um, Yeah, Bolshevik Corps, the Red Menace, like, from the 1950s, like... That period of time is really interesting because you can see, like, during the Russian Civil War, mm-hmm. you've got, like, a lot of European powers, including the United States, and they're backing the, the whites, like, the the anti-Bolshevik leaders, like the Tsarists, you know, Robert, Robert Megazar, at least some, some form of it. I'm just going to stop right there, but by that point, the Tsar was overthrown. From what I read with Sean McKeegan's book on the Revo- Russian Revolution last year, it seems more like it, it was... Some, some bring the provisional government back, maybe some form of monarchy or like, but not the czar. Like the czar was deposed before uh, the, the October Revolution, so that was I don't think that was the case. But that I'm deviating, so let's get back to like let's get back to like the Red Scare, the the, the menace of communism, and why Hit, why Hitler said you must go east in the future. Another reason is Hitler wants to Hitler wants to create. A self-sustained Germany or self-sustained Third Reich, an empire, he basically. Not, 
Roman Empire. He does not want to trade with like the West because I believe this should be from either his book Mein Kampf or some of his writings or speeches. He mentions like you know international Jewish finance in, in the West. Yeah, I I gotta read more into the economics of, of Nazi Germany, but I think a lot of people get the idea that it was like the pure example of capitalism, and it really wasn't. Hitler did not like the word capitalism. He didn't like the, he didn't like the, the whole idea of capitalism because because of that. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he associated it with like Jewish the Jews. Yeah, and, and Jew. international yeah. Jewry. It is interesting how. Because when I, I'll go a little tangent, when I first got out of college and I subbed at the by my hometown, mm-hmm. I had middle school student tell me that Germany should have allied with the West to fight the Soviets, fight the communists. At the time, I really did not have an answer. If I could say it again, I'd probably tell him no. Hitler would never do that because to him, the West, like the capitalism, is intentional. Jewry, his words. Yeah. And East, it's um, Judeo Bolshevism. So they're both bad guys, in his opinion. Right, which brings us to 1939. And we'll talk a little bit about the Soviet Union at this point. Uh, by now, it's been, what, almost like 20 years since uh, the October Revolution. Joseph Stalin has been in charge of the, uh, the USSR since uh, 1922 when it became the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Stalin is... And, Stalin's interesting. And well, a lot of his political rivals were poisoned by his enemies. Oh, yeah, no. Like, I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day. Like, it, like as much as, like, we hate Hitler, I, I, you gotta... For me, you gotta remember, too, like, Stalin's also a bastard. Like, it's also a, a, a bad man. Yes, they both had a pretty high body count by, by in their time. Yeah. Because, um, you know, this is... nine. I think around this time, the Soviet Union had about maybe like 108, 50, 180 million people in like Russia, the Ukraine. What, what would be today Belarus? Yeah, back then it was called Belarusia. Belarusia. And, and then that, that wouldn't even include like the the Baltic states and the parts of Poland that they would take and uh, after, the, after the war begins. You want to talk a little bit about like the relations with Germany and, and the Soviet Union? I know in the twenties they were both considered not like well, the the USSR was considered a pariah state. The Weimar Republic needed like trade agreements, so they traded a little bit with each other in the nineteen twenties for natural resources. They did. Stalin, the Soviets, they needed a trade to help with their like their five year plans. Yeah. So. The Soviet Union was transformed from like a mostly agrarian society. Mm-hmm. There was some industry in like the Tsarist Russia, like the, the Russian Empire, but industry wasn't as high as compared to the Soviet Union. And these five-year plans, they basically you know make factories, makes like populate cities. They send work people from the farms mm-hmm. into the workers. Now they had its own price tag. Don't get me wrong; like people were deported forcibly. And in Ukraine's case in the 1930s, there was this uh, the Holodomor, this uh, this man-made famine. I just read a book by Ian Applebaum called Red Famine, and even Stalin did like get an order say starving the death, like the taking of the grain, the mm-hmm. taking of every all the food, increasing the grain quotas, so the grain can be shipped out, like like uh, hard currency conditions. Like he, he should have known that something could run and die from that. Yeah, he's like full speed ahead. 
Hey, uh, Officer Vera, just like just slow down a little bit because like you're coming in a bit slow on my connection. Okay. Yeah. So basically, people in the Ukraine starved, and Stalin's like Stalin didn't care basically for the good of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean that's still controversial. Some will argue there was no man-made famine. Some argue there was. I've only read the one book by Applebaum, and there's a bit more historiography to get into, but it looks like if there wasn't even like a Pacific War to starve the Ukrainians to death, because I think like around two to three million starved mm-hmm. by the time it was over. Like that, the grain quotas, like take the grain from the farms, were mm-hmm. increased. Also, grab all the food you can get your hands on. Like, I don't know. Like, you can't really deny that. <laughs> You can, and I got a feeling this is a big reason why there has been a lot of animosity between the Ukraine and the Russia of today. Yeah, like, that stuff doesn't... I mean, look at the United States between the North and the South over the Civil War. Look at the issues of the Confederate monuments, the Confederate memory. The Confederate state flag. <laughs> and what the war was really about. So, yeah. No, it's, that's, that's common. That, that's happened everywhere. I call that the historical merry-go-round. It gets ginger fast, and that's probably why I'm losing my hair. Well, that, my uh, family heritage. Yeah, well, I'm getting bald too. So, what else do you want to touch upon? I mean, I think everyone knows about, like, Germany invading Poland in 1939. Everyone knows about, like, the... Well, people who, in the world, who know about World War II know about, like, the Molotov River... The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Molotov, has an agreement with the uh, foreign minister from Nazi Germany, like Johann, I'm probably like, I'm butchering his name, Johann, another minute, Ribbentrop, where they sign a non-aggression pact, which basically says we're not allies, but we're not going to fight each other, and we'll cooperate a little bit with each other. They also trade. Yes. Uh, one of the big things, like the Soviets send the Germans food and they send the Germans oil. It's mm-hmm. kind of the two big things that the German journey needs. Just to touch back on the economics, like in order for Hitler to have this empire of his, he needs oil, he needs food, he needs like a lot of natural resources. And Germany just can't produce that. No. He has an ally in Romania, and Romania has oil fields, but like the level that they provide is nowhere near what Germany needs. Same thing for the food. Yeah, so as, as much as Hitler wanted his his, his German to be self-sufficient, it just, it just wasn't? It wasn't. That's why this concept of, as you wrote in his book, Mein Kampf, uh, Liebenstrom, mm-hmm. his living space, like, he sees out in the East all that Germany needs, the food production in the Ukraine, the oil fields of the Caucasus, and he has these visions and plans to go out there like, grab all the land that he can get his hands on, like, get the resources, and I'm trying to remember, like, the exact specifics, but kind of makes it he's there to, I think, produce, mm-hmm. produce the food, send it back to the West where the industry is, and, like, have, like, a cycle. I might be wrong, but basically go in there, get the land, and get the resources, and labor. You said that again, Austin, you broke up. Like, 
go in there, grab the land, get the resources, make this German make Germany great again, make the German Empire great again. Huh, make your country great again. Where have we heard that in the last four years? <laughs> I have no idea, but let us proceed. Yes, well, let's... Viewer, we're, we're, we're kind of doing a crash course, so... Like, I'm still trying to work out the, the politics uh, between the Soviets and the Germans, but there's animosity. Like, they're both ideologically... Opposites. Like, against each other. Yeah. But they're yeah, work, they're, they, they work together right now because they have... Like, nobody else is going to work with them. Like, there was, there was a, attempts to, like, put a, a pact between, like, the Soviet Union... England and France during the Munich crisis in 1938, but it would have entailed the Soviets taking their army through Polish territory. There was a lot of tickets to the Czechoslovakia. There was a lot of animosity. There, there was a lot of animosity between Poland and the USSR at this time for good reasons. And then they fought the war back in 1920. Yes, and uh, Rush, the Russian Empire had controlled a large portion of old Poland. Between them, Austria-Hungary, and the uh, German Empire, G Germany, the Pr Prussians back in the day. So there's a lot of bad history between these, these these nations. And when Germany invades the Poland in 1939, like two what two three weeks after Germany invades, the Soviet Union invades, and takes over parts of the eastern portion of Poland, on the uh, Polish-Russian Polish-Soviet border. They do. There is also this massacre of Polish officers by Soviet, I believe it's the NKVD, kind of their secret police. It, it, this is, it'd be like the KGB 30 years later. In the woods around Katyn, in the Katyn forest. And yep. I want to say it's like ten to 20,000 or even as high as 40,000. Mm -hmm. Timothy Snyder in his book Bloodlands talked about this. I just forgot the number. But there were atrocities committed. Now, that's not letting the Germans off the hook, the Wehrmacht, because they committed atrocities in their way in, too. Like uh, Krakow, uh, Warsaw, which is bombed the smithereens. Mm -hmm. Even when, like, there, were, there really was, like, there was no more strategic value in those towns because, like, the military had been suppressed. And one point I like to make that the German army of 1939, uh, the Wehrmacht, yes. uh, the German military, is not the same army in 1940 or 1941. Uh, the German army in 1939 makes a lot of mistakes going into Poland. They win because they have more men, more modern equipment, more aircraft, more mm -hmm. tanks than the Polish army. But like they stumble, they take losses. The Polish army, you know, even though ultimately they have to surrender and they get mostly destroyed, they fight tooth and nail and inflict a lot of casualties that the Germans like were kind of shocked. Yeah, and then, and then uh, they have to rebuild and rethink their strategy in order to invade, to attack the English and French on the west in next year. I think there was a big, there was a big fear about the uh, about the French attacking in nineteen thirty nine. Obviously, that didn't happen, and maybe I could do it with my own personal podcast on the fall of France because that's kind of my my field, of my my area yes. of interest. Um, France Calder. The German chief of staff, mm -hmm. even his diary, he basically shit his pants because he had like maybe 10, 20 days out in the West. And the French army just like storm through, like, not nothing to hold them back. Yes. Because there's like 90% of the armies out, out in Poland. But 
friends did not only like ask to get rented their guns, and that's about it. And that's kind of one of the reasons why Poland fell, because a big part of the strategy was like hold the line until like England and France come through, come through the back door of Germany. That didn't happen, so it's it, like this parents has a lot of what ifs if like only they did this or that like the kind of factual the alternate history yeah you gotta be careful but, uh, for... yeah as uh, Ian mentioned Britain attack Poland Soviets attack Poland the Soviet army doesn't do that good in the um, in Poland like they take territory but they're not like clean or um, I guess efficient they don't look good in the eyes of the German of the German High Command, this is further compounded by the Winter War of 1940-1941 between the Soviet Union and Finland. Yes. And just to give a quick just to give a a quick rush of the war, the Soviets have more aircraft, more tanks, more men, more artillery, but they are poorly led. A lot of confusion, a lot of communication issues. Mm-hmm. And, like, they try to do these grand strategies that the Red Army just isn't ready for. And although ultimately they, they will succeed because they eventually drive out of the capital and force, you know, Finland to sign an armistice, you had accounts of, like, Finnish troops, like, cutting off uh, Soviet divisions and, like, these launchers in the woods and just annihilating them. They took, what, like a quarter of a million casualties in, like, just a few short months? They did. So basically the army got the job done, but it wasn't pretty. So yeah, dude. So the uh, the Red Army eventually succeeds in Finland. It doesn't do a great job. And it puts in the mind of a lot of the of the officers in, in, involved in the German military that the Red Army is a pushover. And if we have to attack them, we can probably knock them out easily. Yes, I do agree with that. So where do you want to go from here, bro? Uh, I think we're just going to mention the people real quickly about like 1940 and uh, Stalin's hope or hope or expectation that, all right, Germany is going to face towards the West now to fight the French and the English. And I've got to tell you right now, what I've read, Stalin, the German high command, and a, a lot of people in, like, in the respective high command believe that it was going to take a long time for the Western allies and Germany to fight to fight to get like to fight it out to fight it out and win whichever side. I'm gonna mention really quickly like I'm a Francophile, so maybe I got a little bit of a bias towards France. But in World War Two, we all consider like the French army or the French nation be the cheese eating surrender monkeys, and like everyone's like, oh, the fall of France, well that's easy, you know, the French didn't have it in them. What I've read, a lot of people, like Germans in the high command, were afraid of going back into uh, into France. You gotta remember, a lot of these officers, they have been junior officers or NCOs or whatever in the uh, First World War. They had spent four years in the trenches fighting the French army and the British. So, to them, to a lot of them, it's shit. We are going to be bashing our heads in for the next four years. There's a lot of that mindset going on. Now, you will read about like people like Heinz Guderian or Aaron Rommel, probably like more of the famous uh, German leaders that come out of that time. I have a, a lot of German German like commanders who, well, not Rommel because he, he died during the war, but like Guderian and everyone else talk about. Oh, it was like so it was such an easy it was such like an easy uh, victory with the French. Like 
there was like no. It was like it was a it was a a, a, um, a walk in the park. That's a lot of it is with hindsight and looking back at history. A lot of it is you know Guderian and Rommel at the time. They were like one of the they were like the few I think vocal opponents that they could defeat like the West West easily. A lot of people in the uh, in the high command were the old methodical way, like you know, like. <sighs> What's the best way to describe this? It's it's speaking with hindsight, and also you're, you're like the one voice in a thousand that says this can work. Whatever else can tell you, it's either not gonna work or it's gonna work, but it's gonna be a slaughter. It's gonna be a bloodbath. I guess you can say new blood versus the old guard. Yeah, new blood, new new guard versus the old guard. Yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons why the drive to France worked so well is because of, like Rommel and Guderian ignored orders, like time and time again. Their superiors are telling them, "Hey, don't send your tanks too far forward. The infantry is way behind you." Yeah. So like, don't drive forward, and they kind of like ignore or they seek permission from Hitler, and they end up driving to the coast. The Rommel reaches the coast, but if they play like, traditionally, like how the top. Todd Jones wanted to do it, mm-hmm. it would have been more methodical, more time to uh, for the French to, to engage. But yeah. basically, like, fall of France was basically a huge gamble by the Germans. It wasn't like, you know, pre, like it was already pre-configured, oh, we'll take care of the French, no, no problem. It was, it's a, it's a gamble to push all of our tanks through the Ardennes, through the Sedan, cut the cream of the French and French. British, yeah. Angle forces up in Belgium mm-hmm. and drive for the coast. That was a gamble. That's also like one of the, I believe it was the branch of like Eric von Manstein. It's called the um, the sickle cut, the, the Schurmunds, or like the scythe cut of the like case, the breaking point. Case yellow is their is their plan. Yeah. So so pretty much everyone's expecting the battle of France to like go on for a while, like the guys match together. Mm-hmm. So everybody is just stunned when France falls in six weeks, especially the Soviets. And you want to take over? Yes, no more so than Joseph Stalin. Now remember, like five minutes ago, I said Stalin is expecting that. All right, it'll take a long time for the Germans and, and like their Western ally, the West, to fight it out. That gives the Soviet Union plenty of time, like a couple of years, to rebuild their forces to eventually um, prepare against the Germans. Now, I don't get too good in speculative, speculative history. I know there's some people that said that the Soviets were going to, like, counterattack or launch their own preemptive invasion. I don't know about that. There's some authors about it, but their, their facts are a little wacky. But just what is factual is that Stalin was expecting the Battle of France to be a lot longer than it was. And when the French surrendered and the British are kicked out of the continent and go back to England, he is basically shocked, from what I would put it. I think he said something about this is a conspiracy between the uh, the Western capitalists and the Germany to destroy the Soviet Union because now he realizes shit. Eventually, that uh, you know the the Germans will attack us and we are nowhere re- ready for that for an invasion like that because this is like this is the time where you know they they taken lessons from Poland from Finland and like we need to revamp the. Uh, the, the, we need to revamp the Red Army. I think that's where we should start with the Red Army. Us, what do you what do you know about the about the, the Red Army, the Soviet the Soviet armed forces of uh, World War Two? 
So first off, the Russian army is massive. Yeah. By 1941, they have roughly around 5 million men under arms. Mm-hmm. With more reservists, like trained reservists, at least no impeccable rifle. Yeah. They have around twenty to 24,000 tanks. And in the western sector, there's like seven to 8,000 aircraft. Mm-hmm. We have like overall 15,000 in the Soviet Union. Like they have one of the largest air forces, one of the largest tank, like tank forces, and one of the largest armies. Numbers are good, but if you look closely, they have a lot of problems. First off, we need to talk about the purges. During the 1930s, there were the great purges that took a lot of the high command out of the Red Army. Like Stalin's paranoia, or like, pretty much Stalin's paranoia. A lot of these men were deemed enemies of the state, or enemies of Stalin, and were either sent to the gulags or shot for treason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most noble ones, like Mikhail Tukhachevsky, who was trying to, like, get the uh, doctrine of, like, Soviet deep battle, like, their version of, Blitzkrieg. you know, punching through. Yeah, I'll say Blitzkrieg, although the Germans didn't really use Blitzkrieg. That was kind of a sexy turn involved by the West. Makes sense. So, Dubachevsky's dead. Uh, so, like, a lot of that, all that brain power is lost. Although, recent scholarship, and I'll mention Tick later, but the purges didn't kill every single person. Like, a lot of these guys who are in the gulags, they'll be reinstated back this. Mm-hmm. Back into service in, in a later I, time. Yes. Like, the political enemies, like, some of the officers can out are, like, the old hands that don't, don't really know how to, like, adapt to, like, the modern warfare. Mm-hmm. But it does leave a lot of the uh, the brain power gone. From the mm-hmm. how to coordinate armies, like, communication, how to, like, develop new strategies, new tactics, new doctrines, new policies... Do you want to mention, too, about the commissars of the, the Red Army? Yes. Now, the commissars are kind of the political officers to make sure that everything done in the Red Army is done for the Soviet Union or for the party, for the states. Yes. That's going to be a problem because that kind of creates this dual leadership. So, like, the military commanders can't really make a decision unless the commissar signs off or agrees with it. So, you will see instances where... Like, units should have retreated way before, but the, like, colonel or lieutenant in charge doesn't want to get on the console back side because they do tend to report to the NKVD, and the NKVD might, like, knock at your door late at night, uh, to your family to shoot you. So that creates more confusion, more chaos, uh, more lethargy in decision-making in the Red Army. And it's not just the purges. It's also the Red Army does expand. They expand, and you've got officers taking command of units that they're nowhere near capable of mm-hmm. taking. Like, they need more time. They don't have that. You've got men who shoot lieutenants. They're now captains or colonels, leading men in much larger units. I think in management, they call that the Peter Principle. Sort of. It's like, the, the American Army, the U.S. Army, had the same problem when they went overseas in World War One. Yes. You basically expand a small-time army to a large expeditionary force, and you gave, like, lieutenants and captains, or, like, maybe 90 days of training, and they're sitting there really not out in the field. But the AEF got results in World War One, but holy crap, it was not pretty. And the Red Army has kind of the same issues. Yes, and their equipment has to be updated, too. Like, I think everyone thinks of, like, the T-34 
the slope, one of the first slope tanks is like the Soviet tank. Not a lot of these tanks are developed in 1940-1941. Like, I'll, 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 I'll post pictures later, but you got tanks like the, the T-26, the BT-7, because, you know, everybody loves tanks. Like, they're, uh, they're developed into war. They're, like, they're not going to be up to par with some of the later German tanks of the war that we'll see in 1941. The tanks... The, the tanks work like the BTs, the T-26s. They work. They're fast. They have a decent gun, like a 45 millimeter. Mm -hmm. But they have thin armor, and they're just not up to snuff. Now, like my brother mentioned, there are KVs and T-84s. But at like overall, the 24,000 tanks in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. like around 1,500 are those types. Like they're just gaining production. They're just coming to the front lines. And the numbers will, will give like an illusion. Mm -hmm. But... About a quarter of these tanks altogether are actually in working order. Ah. There's like some angle issue that's going to be plaguing these tanks. You'll have like tanks going in and don't like their, their sights aligned or they have like each of the transmission. Uh, the lack of training is going to be a factor. A lot of these drivers like they may spend like an hour or two in the tank or they're on combat. So it's like there's lack of training, uh, poor maintenance. Also, to get more in depth, like, in order for, like, a military force to work today, mm -hmm. you need a combined of infantry, armor, and artillery. So it's not just tanks. Like, if you play World of Tanks, like, you think, oh, the armor's the only, only way to go. That's only part of the picture. Like, the tanks need infantry to look out for, like, hot spots, need artillery to drive the infantry away. It, they all work together as a team. If it's just tanks, then they're going to run into problems. The British learned that the hard way in North Africa... Many, 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 many times. Where they send all their tanks against anti-tank guns that they can't see. They get knocked down, brewed up. So the British learn that through blood. So do the Soviets. Yeah, and uh, uh, the, sorry, the Germans. Sorry, you go ahead. You go ahead, man. I'm cutting you off. Yeah, sorry, folks. Um, we're talking in different rooms. The Red Air Force. The Soviet Air Force, they have the numbers, but a lot of these planes are obsolete. Mm -hmm. They sell some biplanes, or sell like the I-16s from the Spanish War. A lot of their pilots, they um, they know the training. It's just all these factors are swirling together, and it third army look big on paper, but it has these whole slew of issues that are gonna be biting in the ass when the crunch time comes. Which is why I think the the Soviets are hoping for at least a couple of years for the Germans actually attacked. Because did they know that the attack was coming? Should we, should we talk a little bit about like the political side about why why launch this big operation against the Soviet Union? Yes, for the Germans, it's kind of like a, a one-two punch, like a quick victory. As I mentioned earlier, the the third rank needs like all that resources. Mm-hmm. And initially, once they go west, like once Hitler takes uh, France, Norway, and leaves Britain alone, the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. he figures like the, the Great Britain will surrender or like come to terms. The fact that they don't and they continue to fight, that's a problem for Hitler because that cuts off all the trade across the oceans. Yeah, because... Like with the powers that would originally like supply him with materials. Like he wants to be a self-sufficient... Germany, but he will trade if need be to get the resources he needs. I mean, damn those British for not playing ball with uh, 
Hitler, Hitler's dreams. Yeah, it, it's what they stalemate at this point. The, the Germans can't match the RAF over England. They can't match the Royal Navy. Navy. There is the U-boats, and that will be a problem. But as time goes on, mm-hmm. like needs the, uh, the German army, the German Luftwaffe, that will draw resources away from U-boats. So yeah, and like, and at this time, like the right now, Great Britain was the only like major Allied force still in the war. The Empire. I want to say the British Empire only because it's not just Great Britain. It's Great Britain. It's uh, the colonies in Africa, India, Canada. Yeah, New Zealand. All, all, all of them. All of them are fighting against the fighting against the uh, the Germans. On the flip side, the British can't send them any units in on land, so they're kind of fighting on like the edges of the battlefields, like North Africa, the periphery. And create like they don't have the numbers to do a direct assault into the heart of the Third Reich. But for now, it's kind of a stalemate out in the West. And Hitler, he does get resources from like the Western countries he occupies, but it's kind of a short term, like snatch and grab. Mm-hmm. And he looks at the numbers. Like, I don't want to get too in detail, but let's just say the Third Reich was not a really good government. No. A really fun uh, empire. Like, you got all these agencies competing against each other for scant resources, and it was a cluster. Which, which brings us to why Hitler wants to invade the Soviet Union. Part of it is his ideological reasoning, because, you know, as we said in Mein Kampf, he's like, we need Germany's living space, and the best living space is on the East. It would get rid of Judeo Bolshevism, which he believes oh. is the scourge of the earth. And uh, also, too, he thinks it's the, it's one of the best ways to knock uh, Great Britain out of the war. Because he's like, well, if I, we, can def- we can defeat the Soviet Union, that'll be like the last big like land power that opposes us. And then Great Britain must super peacefully realize it is hopeless. That's what, so some of the few reasons I, I could think of off the, off the top of my head. Austin, any other reasons you could think of? Like, like you mentioned, ideological. This is the battle against Judeo-Bolshevism. Mm-hmm. The sworn enemy of the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. Uh, this will be a war without mercy, a war of annihilation. I want to say it's the Krieg. I, I'm gonna push the German, but it's like a war of annihilation. He makes that plain in March of 1941 in a speech to the German command. Mm-hmm. He'll tell them like, "This is where we're going in. Get the resources, destroy the Bullet Vision, and take care of like the undesirables, uh, Jewish." Uh, like, extermination is on the loose. And while some German officers in the Wehrmacht disagree with that, a lot of them are on board. They're on board because they're, like, they're with the cause. So that's one thing I want to make clear in this uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. The German Wehrmacht, the here, the regular the hair, army, yeah. was intertwined with the Holocaust and the mass killings and the war crimes out in the east for the longest time since like the start of the cold war to the end of the soviet union there's been this kind of mythos this legend that the wehrmacht fought a clean campaign that they committed no war crimes whatsoever that was all the fault of the nazis the ss right the hitler then the ss mm-hmm. modern scholarship guys like david glantz david style Stephen Fritz, to name a few, they all say that's a crock of shit. Well, a lot of the generals who survived, I'm sure, wanted to pass blame off on the uh, 
the Nazis to make themselves look better. And we can do a whole discussion over the historiography of the Soviet-German War. Yes. But basically, they were going hand-to-hand with, into Russia, Soviet Union, with this idea of, like, it's a war without mercy. One of, those, one of those orders issued the commissar order. If mm-hmm. they take any of those commissars under captivity, like the Nazis are just going to shoot them. Another order is what's called the hunger plans. It's not, yes. it's not like a directive, but Hitler is telling like it goes from Hitler all the way down to like the, the Lancers to through the German soldier. Mm-hmm. Grab food as you march into the Soviet Union. That will solve the crisis in Germany. Like make sure there's enough food in Germany. That will solve the soldiers because they move off the land. And they go in, like the high command goes in knowing that if they steal the food from the peasants, like they'll starve to death. But yeah. you see us again and again and again in the writings. Make, like, if you, how to say it is, every bushel of food or every parcel of food you don't take, that's something you take out of the mouths of Germans back home. So this is kind of a war of annihilation. And everyone should have known about at that point. Was it the quartermaster general Wagner that I'm thinking of that did the calculations that said, "All right, like there'll be a few million people that will die within six months of this um, of this hunger plan." Either Wagner or Thomas, but yeah, pretty much the high the high command was pretty complicit in the uh, the hunger plan. So that brings us to June of 1941. Um, I think we should jump into there because I think we spent we spent I think we spent enough time like talk about the background of Barbarossa, why it happened, and what's going what's yeah, been going and on. I know it's like a, there's a lot we missed. Yeah, like sorry guys, we don't want to make this like an eight hour lecture. I'm sure you guys don't either. It's a big event that has a lot of facets involved. But why don't we just jump right to uh, Barbarossa, June 1941? Awesome. Why don't you about the buildup and the immediate events preceding Barbarossa? Just right, right, right then. In short, the Germans were like they, they build their forces along the borders mm-hmm. and what's now occupied Poland. They do have support, they have material and manpower help from other Axis nations. Uh, hung- Hungary, Romania, uh, I think a lot of them show up in nineteen forty two if I'm correct. I believe so. Italy too, right? Was that was that also later? I know they had like almost was like yeah, they they show up a lot in nineteen forty two. Yeah. But, like, eventually they will have, like, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, I believe, Italy, and a division from Spain. Yes, the Blue blue Division. Hey, Oz? Yeah, Oz. Right, so, like, the Blue Division from Spain that uh, was full of fascists. Uh, What were you going to mention, Oz? So it's so anti-communist feelings, like the great fight against uh, Bolshevism, against the, the communism. Mm-hmm. There's also some anti-Semitism taking place. The, the, that's like kind of like the big motivations. So, so I think later on, like you have like some volunteers from Belgium and France and Norway, Scandinavia, those ah. regions. But um, overall, the Germans will amass around 3 million men in what's called the Austria, the Eastern Army. Mm-hmm. They've got 3 million men. They have over 3,000 tanks. They've got more of the Panzer IVs, the Panzer Threes. They still have a lot of the older model Panzer IIs. 
which although they work, they're not great compared to like modern tanks. Yeah, just like year before. Like, yeah, they gotta get replaced. Mm-hmm. They have oh gosh, I can't remember like how many. I think around three thousand aircraft from the Luftwaffe. Yep. It was a lot. It was like between two and three thousand aircraft. And this is all divided like Army Group North. And they're divided like these big giant army groups. And each army got, group has a group of armies in it. Yes, Henceforth, army yeah, group. Ar- yeah, you got Army Group North, which ultimately they're going to Leningrad. Yep. You've got Army Group Center is the biggest one. Their mission is to go like to, eventually to Moscow, although there is debate between Hitler and Alder what the ultimate objective is. We'll talk about that later. Yep. You've got Army Group South, which is aimed to go into the Ukraine and into the Caucasus for the food and the oil. Mm-hmm. Now, each army group will have, like, infantry with it and the panzers, the tanks. Mm-hmm. The panzers are divided into what are called panzer groups. Uh, army Group North has one, Army Group Center has two, and Army Group South has the last one. A point I do want to make about the German army, mm-hmm. it has a lot of these fancy tanks, this fancy motorized equipment, but that's all concentrated in these panzer groups. There's, like, around 19... Panzer divisions and 15 motorized divisions. Mm-hmm. Around what's 151 German divisions altogether. Yeah, I want to say like overall between like 10 to 15 percent, maybe maybe even 20 percent of like the German army is motorized and have ta- have tanks, and it's the it's what a lot of people think about when they think of like you know Blitzkrieg or like the the modern like the mechanized German army that just whips everything out. But you gotta remember too. Pretty much most of the other like parts of the German army are at this point are drawn are horse drawn. It, it's basically the same as what was going on in uh, World War One. It's it's a uh, little bit was propaganda, a little bit is uh, you know mythology. Like yeah, like they got all these like they got a bunch of these like great tanks, but it's actually one of the least mechanized armies in the West, or at least at, least at this time. Hell, even the the British Expeditionary Force, even if they had like those like really, uh, those like those bus lorries, like busting their tro- the troops around, like the the, the double decker buses, it was fully me- it was fully motorized and mechanized in 1940. The the Germans couldn't even say that in 1941. Yeah, the problem is that can't. Sorry, I had some uh, bad audio. Mm-hmm. The problem is the Germans can't produce that much equipment. Even if they could, they could not fuel that much equipment. Yeah. Uh, the oil crisis will be a factor in germ planning. It, it is something. We, it is something we like to make fun of for, like, like the really hardcore history revisionists. Like, oh, if they just made like the the German super tank, they would have won the war. And we're like, all right, how the hell are they gonna like fuel it? Like, there's no, there's nothing left. If they only build like two or three more Bismarcks, the world would be on their knees. Yeah, yeah, so this is all, like, you, uh, Wearaboos out there. <laughs> yeah, so, like, the Wearaboos, there's, like, the ones I like, because they, they're pretty sane, but, like, the top ones are, like, the neo-Nazis, say, say clear of them. Yeah, yeah, you can usually tell if you talk to them a little, like, the more you talk to them, the more you realize how much of the psychopaths they are. Uh, I mentioned the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, they've got around two, three thousand aircraft support. Um, the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, doesn't mm-hmm. play that much of a role because it's mostly a land war. Mm-hmm. Although they will have units go in the Baltic Sea, like mine, the Soviet port, so they can send their Navy out to mm-hmm. uh, test. And they'll help support Army Group North as time goes on. 
Now, the strengths of this German army, they do have combat experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of these men have been in combat since Poland. Those who are lucky have gone that through. They have good communications and emphasis on combined arms warfare, combining the tank, the infantry, and the artillery all together, along with the Luftwaffe, the aircraft. Mm -hmm. The Army of 1941 is not the same Army of 1939 or even 1940. Also, they have a very big emphasis on the operation, on like these giant like movements of armies. It's all based on the present style of warfare. Like back in the 19th century, the times of Napoleon, yes, where like the Germany and Prussia when they kind of came together, they usually have like two enemies on either side, so they usually get geared up for like a short, quick, decisive, big campaign, and then head back into the frontier. Ooh. That's what they get geared up for. So what they're looking to do isn't to tackle their army, you know, the Red Army head on, but kind of encircle. Make big punctures through the lines and circle these massive Soviet armies and force them to capitulate. Mm -hmm. That's what they're banking on. That's what they did in France. That's what they did in the Balkans. And it's more for them so far. Would you but, con would you consider it to be like tactical, right? Like everyone loves tactics in military terms. I I would even call it like tactical. Like they focus so much on like the tactics, they forgot about the big picture. Yes, and that is ultimately one of the biggest weaknesses of Wehrmacht, or the Austrians in this case. There's so much emphasis on the tactical level, like the small picture of the operations, that there isn't a big focus on a strategy, or like a little bold take. You'll see this with Hitler, Halder, Bach, one of the German generals, like arguing back and forth. But where'd it go? Hitler and his mind. All right, so we got a problem with like the, the the German operational versus strategy for the army. Austin, you want to mention because you you talked about it before we're gonna mention like the whole issue that Hitler had with Halder, and you want to mention who Halder was again because I think people know Adolf Hitler's name because it's Hitler, but like a guy like Halder, like no one know no one outside the circle is gonna know who he is. The Franz Halder is the German. Chief of Staff. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually a general, at least troops in the combat, but it kind of coordinates all the armies together. He's kind of like the head honcho. So basically, he'd be he'd be like a member of the Joint Chiefs. Of, I'm trying to give like an American audience perspective. Like today, like you know, how we have like the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Like every head of the Army Navy get together. Would be something like that. Something like that. For the most part, he's coordinating the uh, the Aust here. Out in the east, so he's okay. kind of passing down a lot of the orders. Okay. There's gonna be division between Hitler and Halder and like Halder staff and other like-minded generals. Because the big thing that the German army, the the German high command staff, is thinking of is go to Moscow, take mm -hmm. Moscow, destroy the Soviet, destroy the Red Armies, they'll end the war. They kind of do a repeat of France, where they took Paris. And kind of capitulated the uh, the country like smash and grab. Yes. Hitler is seeing this from a an ideological and a resource uh, economic standpoint. Like in his mind, it's going to be a long drawn out war. We need the fuel and the food and the caucuses of the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So he has an emphasis on to go south. 
And Halder kind of pulls the wool over Hitler's eyes for a bit. And Hitler doesn't really see us until, like, when the campaign's underway. And then there will be a huge blowout that ultimately, by the summer of 1942, once the next operation doesn't go so well, uh, Halder's out of a job. He gets kicked out of the uh, chief staff. Yeah. Um, there is a division between Hitler and his generals. And I had to say it, sometimes Hitler was right, and sometimes the generals were wrong. Yeah, I think the mythos is that Hitler was a madman, and you got to people, guys, people who are mad can't pull off stuff like this. Like, they just can't. They're, they're evil, for sure, but they're not mad. He was a gambler. Yes, he was a gambler. And in this case, he lost, but... But he had a lot of clout, too, because of, uh, of, the, of the fall of France the previous year. So, again, guys, like, the, the German high command, they were afraid of the French. And when they saw that they beat the French, and like, well, the Red Army is, is going to be a pushover. This should be, it should be no problem. We'll be done with, like, in six weeks. Which, they need to be done within, like, six weeks or, like, two to two to not even three months. Because the quartermaster general, by guy Wagner, right? That was the guy? Yes, Wagner... Go on. He's in charge of the supplies, like the supplies and logistics, correct? Yes, and, he's the army. And when they're planning Barbarossa, he tells the high command, Hey, I'm going to let you know, we can go about 500 kilometers like into Soviet territory, no problem. But after that, we're going to have issues bringing supplies up. It's going to be a lot of stopping and starting. We just don't have the capacity to uh, for continuous invasion. Well, what was the German yeah. high command response to that? Basically, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll destroy the Soviets before that happens. Um, they do kind of accelerate the timetables, like, oh, we got to get this done, like, earlier. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, um, Halder, like, kind of dismisses that idea. Like, it's either 500 or 800 kilometers. It's around about two-thirds of the way to Moscow. Right. Around well, Smolensk. Uh, so, like, logistics was never a great thing in the German army. Um, like, the emphasis of maneuvers and the force of arms, that's, like, been their focal point. Logistics isn't one of them. I, we talk a lot about, in the United States, like, production of ships, trucks, and all these supplies, like, to get men and material from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. The Germans don't have that same doctrine, that same emphasis. So, like, they're taking a lot of their, they're taking, like, over 600,000 horses into Soviet Union, supply the infantry. Mm -hmm. We'll use railroads once they get into the Soviet Union, but the gauges are different, like, the width of the tracks, they gotta rebuild. They don't put as much resource into that as they should have. They will try to use trucks to, like, bring supplies, but mm -hmm. I'll talk about that later. Basically, the Germans don't have, only have enough supplies for X amount of miles, not all the way to Moscow. But the high command kind of like ignores it, like that's uh, no big deal. Like the Soviets, they'll, they'll collapse. We we see them in action already. Like their uh, assembling classes are giant with feet of clay. Like they'll just, I believe Hitler mentioned like it's a Ryan House door, and then uh, it'll collapse. Yes, there was a lot of, I think the term is wishful thinking on the, uh, on the the, the part of the Germans. Wishful thinking, or I call it scenario fulfillment. Like only Ivala tells them this is how it's gonna be is going in their heads, and all the other info saying, no, that's not how it's going to work, is going over their heads, or they're just ignoring it. Yeah, I think they, they, they that, that's a no-no in the army today. Yeah. 
Also, they don't have great intelligence. Now, like, the Army intelligence kind of gets a good idea of how many Soviet troops are at the borders, but they totally miss, like, how many reservists start in the rear or rear echelon units. Because you'll see it time and time again, especially Halder's diaries, mm-hmm. how much, like, well, shit, we took out 12 divisions. They said no 12 up. What he said, but by December, like, we should have destroyed the Red Army two times over already. Yeah, so there's kind of a command of, oh, shit, <laughs> one over our heads. Yeah. All right, I, th- I think that's a good place to start with Barbarossa. I mean, we won't try... I don't think I have to spend too much time on, like, the, the campaign itself, just because it's, like, A, we don't want to miss, like, a four-hour four hour lecture, and, and B, I, I, we don't want to lose the audience. So, us, it's, it's June 22nd, it's the early morning hours... And basically all hell breaks loose on the uh, German-Soviet border. Pretty much. Warning signs. Um, some units took heed. A lot didn't. The big thing is, like, Stalin kind of, no, this isn't going to happen. Like, the historians have gone back and forth why Stalin did what he did, which is basically nothing. I, I think uh, Stalin, at this point, is like, he wanted to do everything possible to show Hitler that he wasn't going to attack him. So I, I think I even heard like the the like I was watching like the World War Two by uh, Indian Idel and his crew, like hours before the invasion, the Soviets had sent like another train full of supplies into the uh, into German held territory. So I, I think Stalin had this idea that this is my opinion. So take it for what it's worth. I think in Stalin's mind that if he didn't see any evidence or refuse to see any evidence of German buildup into the Soviet to attack the Soviets, then it wasn't there. It's a little... It's like uh, Chernobyl, where there's graphite on the ground, and uh, who's the who's the guy that's like, it's not there? You just watched yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of that. You didn't see any German troops on the border because they're not there. <laughs> that's kind of one of the reasons. Now, the troops were at the border... Just in case, like, we're going to fight the Germans eventually, but they didn't know that, like, at that point in time. Yeah. A lot of the units, they don't know what's going on up until, like, the bombs are falling. Right. Uh, the Luftwaffe has a field day in the first day of Barbarossa. They destroy over 1,500 Soviet aircraft on the ground. Some Red Air Force units get off on the ground and fight, but they're outmatched and outnumbered, so their victories are few and far between, and their losses are heavy. Yeah. For like the first month, the Red Air Force kind of gets neutralized out in the West, and the troops on the ground they're dealing with the Luftwaffe all the time. But uh, yeah, so the Germans invade. Operation Barbarossa is in effect, and just quick clarification: Barbarossa, I believe, comes from one of the Germanic emperors that fought in the Crusades. And if my medieval history is 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 isn't as rusty as I think it is. He was the uh, king or emperor that decided he was gonna cross a river in his suit of armor and drown, and he drowned because he refused to take his armor off. Now I, I don't know personally why they named him why they named this Barbarossa. I thought it was like a bad to me that's like a bad omen. I think Beaver meant Anthony Beaver. Okay. But as Barbarossa kicks off. Mm-hmm first week is going to be hell for the Soviets. Yes. Now, the Soviets, their army groups are titled uh, fronts. Yeah. So, like, north to south, you've got the northwest front, the western front, the southwest front, and the southern front. Mm-hmm. And they get slammed. 
particularly up in the north and in the center of this whole area. And I want to impart on the viewers like the scale and scope. 500 miles, mm -hmm. like from the border to Smolensk, that's not even all the way to, to Moscow. 500 miles is like going from the town of Maine all the way down to, oh gosh, like not even, even past New York City, I believe. Yeah, it's a lot. It's like if we went, like, I'm probably getting the mileage mixed up, it's like going down from Connecticut to uh, South Carolina. We used to visit the grandparents down there. Yeah, because it's 300 miles from Connecticut to Baltimore, and that's only a fraction of what the Germans had to cross and how big, how big the Soviet Union was. Yeah. So, like, it's the size of these battles and the scope. We're talking about troops in the millions slamming into each other, like, two months. Mm -hmm. I'll get ahead of myself, but... Overall, we the United States had like 400,000 deaths, combat deaths, mm -hmm. in World War II alone. Soviets take that in like the first month or two. And that's only a drop in the bucket. Not to mention the prisoners. Like over 3 million prisoners. Now, it seems like the Soviets are losing badly. And they are a start, but they're not destroyed. What you'll see happen in these big offensives as... Armed group center pushes on from the border to Minsk. They take mm -hmm. Minsk and uh, Belarusia. They encircle most of the Western Front and destroy that army in detail, mm -hmm. the army group. Uh, that commander Pavlov, he'll escape, but he'll be shot by uh, Stalin in the NKVD because that was his defeatist because he got his armor destroyed. Mm -hmm. They'll jump off the small lands, and like in the Minsk pocket, they'll take like three or 400,000 prisoners of war in one go. Whereas, like, United States, like, the Philippines is, like, our biggest capitulation has only, like, 100,000. So, like, the, the numbers. Yeah. This, is, this isn't to deny what the U.S. or other allies did. Didn't mean anything because, you know, everybody sacrificed something. Just, you have to understand, like, in the Soviet mindset, like, if you go to Russia, you go to these grave sites, whereas, like, 100,000 dead unidentified or like, these mass graves, like, you have to step back and look and say, holy shit, this is, this is like, huge. It's... I remember we went to Russia almost a decade ago. It was the same thing. You had there was a lot of like memorials or remembrance about the World War II. They called it the Great Patriotic War. Uh, I, I found it a lot more in depth or touching back to the Second World War than we have here over in America. It struck a deeper chord in the Soviet Union for sure. Yeah, Russia. <laughs> Now, you've got these big encirclement battles as, like, the summer goes into the fall, into, like, early autumn. Mm -hmm. You've got Minsk in Belarus, you've got Smolensk. Big battle, 100,000 prisoners taken. Mm -hmm. The Red Army is falling back, but it's not destroyed. Like, they reform new divisions. I mentioned earlier those, the intelligence failures of the German army. Like, they, they miss all the reservists being put in the service. Yes, yes, they did. Now, these reservists, they're not the same caliber of, like, a, the troops that are on the front line. Maybe, like, give them a rifle in here, go fight for the motherland. But they're still throwing themselves against the, against the uh, Germans, and they're still slowing the Germans down. Um, they In the south, it's a lot more tough for army group south. Stalin, he knows, like, who's going to fight, fight him sooner or later. He puts the bulk of his armor down the south in the Ukraine. So what you see in, like, the first week, you see, like, this massive Soviet counterattack in the south. 
around like the mm-hmm. places of a Dukno and Brody, where they do haul like the Panzer Group for a few days. But there's a big issue with the Soviet armies. A lot of these units are still like getting new equipment, half trained. Like half trained, they don't have the number of trucks or rifles or mortars or artillery to actually be that effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, like there's like two thousand things Soviet tanks going to combat around Dubno and Brody. Many of those don't get to the front line because they either break down or they run out of fuel, and there's no way to like get fuel to the tanks. They're also they have no air support, so the loot wolf has a field day. That's a problem. <laughs> And again, many of these tanks are light tanks, like the BT-7s, the BT-6, and the T-26 tanks, and they get chewed up. Now, when the Germans do encounter the KV tanks, the T-34s, that's when, like, the German troops start crapping their pants. They have, like, their standard 37mm anti-tank gun, mm-hmm. and they'll see, like, the rounds just blink, bounce off the armor. Mm-hmm. There's one instance up in Lithuania, I believe, where the bunch of like heavy KV tanks, the one or two, like the big bunker busters, yep, pulled up a German Panzer division or like a Panzer group, like a part of it. Even when they're in a field, it's just like the giant pillboxes because like nothing because they're shooting the Germans and nothing the Germans like hit, make a dent. Now that changes when they like take their big 88 millimeter flat guns, like to shoot against the aircraft. Yeah. Usually, guess the tanks knock them out, but like these tanks, although they're a big problem for the Germans, they're coming in penny packets, like at a time, but not in the big numbers. It is the start of a wake up call, though, for a lot of Germans in the field, because like, hey, we were told that the so we were told like that the Soviet army had like shit equipment and it was shit troops, and while like the the training made me lackluster, they actually they're a lot more tenacious than what they saw in the West, and they actually have equipment that actually. That are holding their own. Yes, a lot of Soviet troops do fight to the death. Now, there's a lot of prisoners overall. There's gonna be like over 3.3 million prisoners in Barbarossa, like up to the gates of Moscow. Mm-hmm. But although while some will deserve because they hate the Soviet Union, they hate the um, like the Bolshevism because a lot of these like they're probably like in, the, in the satellite states, but the Soviet Union troops like crap. Mm-hmm. A lot of these soldiers are captured in these big pockets, like around Kiev or around Smolensk, around. And basically, you're cut off from your allies, you're getting shelled and bound to pieces, you have no water, no mm-hmm. food, no ammo, no hope. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of these guys capitulate just because they have no other option. There is a fortress in Belarusia, I think called the Brest Fortress. Brest-Lito- yeah, Brest-Lito's Fortress. It's in the same town. Out- Sorry, it's in the same town as the, the sign of the Brest-Lito's Treaty of 1918. And they hold up for like three weeks until like the middle of July when they should like capitulate a long time ago. But like in these isolated pockets, mm-hmm. your troops counterattack and they hold out to the last man. They surrender only when they have to. I mean, there is some desertion, but it's not like big scale. And all that plays a factor in like giving the Germans a lot of casualties. Before, 19, before Barbarossa, they took around maybe 50,000 combat dead mm-hmm. on the first of the war. Uh, they take that number of losses back in July. So within like one month, they've taken the same number of dead as they have taken in the last two years of the war. So it's, it's not exactly the cakewalk that they, that they, that they claimed it was going to be. 
it's not a cakewalk. And as the Germans move in, I mentioned those Panzer groups, those infantry armies. Yep. What's going to happen is you'll see the Panzer groups, like, they do their thing. They puncture the blinds. They encircle the armies. They keep pushing. Like, their emphasis is attack, attack, attack. Mm -hmm. But they're going a lot faster than the infantry. And what you'll see is the infantry flying behind them, trying to catch up, but they can only, like, march so much a day. Mm -hmm. And you'll have these encirclements of Soviet armies where even though the army gets destroyed, there's enough uh, pockets of resistance to either flee, like, filter out of the, uh, the gaps, mm -hmm. get back to the new front being established further towards Moscow, or they fight as partisans, you know, like, hit German supply lines, hit German rear areas. Yeah, guerrillas. Yeah, they don't really have that much of an effect in 1941, by like late 1942, 1943, when they get organized, when they get help from Stavka, the Soviet high command, because initially they're like, ooh, uh, we, we don't trust them. They might work against the Soviets, but eventually they do play a big part, at least in Belarusia, fighting the Germans. Uh, we'll, we'll get to about September of 1941. Now, the Germans do push mm -hmm. up all across the way, up north towards Leningrad, up center towards Moscow, up south towards the Caucasus of the Ukraine. Where the oil is. Yes, now there is a point of contention in September of 41. Mm -hmm. Hitler gives the order for, I think, Guderian's Panzer Group to swing south towards Kiev, the capital of the Ukraine. Yes. There's a huge Soviet army right there. Now, his memoirs, Guderian says, no, that's a mistake. We should have gone to Moscow. We will have taken Moscow. Like, how dare Hitler get in the way? Madman Hitler following, following German victory again. Yeah, well, there's logic to, there's logic to Hitler's uh, madness or methods. Mm -hmm. That's a huge army on the flank of Army Group Center where there comes the point where the, well, like, their supply lines are getting stretched. Yeah, this is the it part of the crazy. this is this is the part where like the, the the German supplies start to catch up with them, when they were warned like, hey, we can only go for so long until we have issues with issues with, with equipment and supplies. Yes, so those issues with supplies, the Germans they have rail teams like fix the railroads, mm -hmm. but like they don't put a lot of emphasis on it, and the Soviets they like from day one adopt a scorched earth policy, so. They tear up rail tracks, they burn buildings. It does impact the civilians who are left behind. Uh, I, I, there's no toys about that, but it does hamper the Germans to, to move in, into the uh, Soviet Union. So, so Guderian's ordered to swing south toward Kiev and destroy this large Soviet army. And it, it, it's a victory for the Germans. Um, I think like four to 500,000 Soviet troops are captured mm -hmm. after taking Kiev. It's a huge loss for the Soviets, but the fact that the Red Army isn't destroyed, that they continue to fight, mm -hmm. the Germans are kind of screwed because they're realizing that they're, like, the offense isn't working because the Soviets keep fighting. Is this where they yeah. is this where they start to bring war into into their uh, other other policies like the hunger plan and the war against the civilians? Yeah, I want to do that when we get to the gates of Moscow. Sure, sure. But, uh, yeah. So, like, they keep fighting, they keep fighting. A after Kiev, there's a brief rest. The Germans try again and get to Moscow, but you've got the, uh, the rainy season. I think it's, like, the Rasputitsa? Rasputitsa, yeah. Uh, basically, the roads turn, turn, turn to mud. Now, in the Soviet Union, there are very few developed roads. 
they, they, they run from east to west. A lot of these roads are dirt paths, dirt roads. Mm -hmm. And once like the rain season hits, they turn to a quagmire. Like the tanks get stuck, horses get stuck, and like the army's kind of like is slogging through. Yeah. So those rapid advances in the summer, you don't see during the rainy season. The roads do harden by the time like November or October, November hits with the coming winter. But by that point, the German supply lines are shot. The railroads, they, mm -hmm. can, they can like fix, but they don't have enough rolling stock to send enough troops, enough equipment out east. Yeah, you, you told me like that they could either send like the winter equipment or the, like the food and stuff to the troops or like the munitions and the fuel. They couldn't do both at the same time. So they said they said the fuel and equipment and the ammo. They sent the winter uniforms, which is gonna, which it's not like a lot. I think a lot of people in, in like World War Two believe that oh, that like the winter stopped the Germans. I mean, it helps, but it wasn't like it wasn't the award winning. It wasn't the uh, the uh, the big the big old end all. Best thing that I can tell people about this is that what I've read from uh, War of Annihilation by Geoffrey Magruder, or I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, is that like the winds are affected both sides, but the difference was the Soviets at least planned ahead and like acted accordingly for the most part. The Germans did not. Not really suffered because of that. Uh, those trucks I mentioned, the Germans try to use trucks to supply the Panzer groups because they're like the real like a punch, iron punch. Mm -hmm. But they found that like as the trucks go further and further into the Soviet Union, they consume more fuel than they'll eventually get the Panzers. So basically, it's worthless. Yeah, it, it's like the, the Allies will have the same problem when they go deep into France into Germany in 1944. Yes, yes, they will. Also, the Germans use a lot of captured equipment, like French trucks, British, Belgian trucks, and that works, except, you know, they don't have the same parts as, like, a German trucks, so that's uh, another logistical nightmare. This is why I tell people to buy American. American trucks? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, like my fellow, my, uh, my nationalist brother. I'm just America. So that's wrong for the Germans, and they take a lot of combat losses. I think around by the time they get to Moscow, mm -hmm. and they, they try to take Moscow like Operation Typhoon, like late October, early, early December, but it appears out like they're at the end of their rope. Mm -hmm. The Panzer groups are broken down, like either through combat losses or through uh, like just breakdowns. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of these Panzers in the summer months, that they, they drive out east, they get their engines clogged with uh, dust and sand. The engines crap out. They gotta get the engines replaced. They can't replace the the, the same at the rate that, that they need. I hate dust, Austin. It gets into everything. Oh yuck! So like you have reports of like Panzer groups or Panzer divisions operating like fifty percent, thirty percent, they held like ten percent strength in the extreme cases. Yeah, like some and divisions that, have like, like ten tanks left out of the out of like hundred and fifty. Yeah, and that's like the punch for the Germans. Like without that, they. It gets more of attrition. Yeah. So the offensive peers out into Moscow by the end of 1941, and like Army Group North ends around Leningrad, Army Group South ends in the Ukraine, Army Group Center ends outside the gates of Moscow. It wasn't as near run as like the um, the war was let like say it was like oh if we had taken out Moscow we'll end the war. A lot of historians disagree. The Soviets will have taken a loss, but 
the Giants can really hold it, I believe. I, th- I think when yeah. I read, yeah, when I read Stephen Fritz last year, uh, Oskrieg, he said the same thing. Like, yeah, like they may have, they, even if they have taken it, they couldn't have. They might probably wouldn't have held it. They just didn't have the manpower, manpower equipment. So I'll end right there for the offensive. I want to go back into the ideological and the war crimes committed because you have you cannot talk about one without the other. No, no, we can't. So I mentioned the hunger plan. I mentioned commissar order. That's a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. What also happened is we have what are called the Einsatzgruppen. They're like the mobile security squads, and they operate behind the army groups. Can you define? Now, can you define security squads for the uh, for the viewers? So basically, the security squads, like for the Einsatzgruppen, officially they're supposed to like you know look for partisans or enemies. But it just it was just a license to kill, pretty much. Basically, anybody that the party considered enemies of the state. And the enemy in this case was the Jews. Yeah. And they killed a lot as they moved out into the east. Uh, Not so, just them. Sorry, did they? I mean, we mentioned like the Holocaust and like the genocide and the Soviet Union have to go hand in hand. Uh. When like these Einsgruppen or any German unit that committed like like deaths against civilians, was it just specifically Jews and communists, or did they just lump everyone everyone from the population into this into the same group? Well, you look at the, uh, find the partisans like Belarusia. Mm-hmm. Like they'll say, "Oh, like this German soldier was killed, so we shot these partisans as reprisal." But if you look at, like, the cash, the death list, like, all right, so you got an old man, you got, like, a five-year-old kid, you got a baby, like, a, a pregnant mother. Like, really, they're all partisans? That's bullshit. And, but did anybody in the high command, like, prevent this from happening? Do they say just let it roll with it or participate in it? There are some instances where, like, Wehrmacht soldiers are against it. Mm-hmm. I will mention, this is July of 1942, but there is this rear security detachment, this, this, um, I forget the unit, but this Austrian sergeant named, um, Anton Schmidt, mm-hmm. he's in charge of, like, rounding up, like, deserters or from the German army, like, guys who got lost, mm-hmm. but he cannot abide by what happens, like, the Holocaust and the mass killing. He will help around 250 to 300 Jewish civilians reach safety. Provide them transport, provide them food, provide them shelter. Damn. He is found, he is uncovered by like his uh by the high command. He's killed. He's hung as a traitor, a deserter, or a traitor. God damn. There are there are other you there are other times where like the the Wehrmacht soldiers, the Lancers, mm-hmm. they don't want to take food from the mouths of like the hungry civilians. Mm-hmm. So that's like orders from the top down. You must take the food or you will be punished or something like that damn and some officers they don't agree with the mass killing not really for moral reasons some do but i don't have any specific examples more so for discipline but i want to mention that while there are individual cases where soldiers shield civilians protect them Mm -hmm. don't commit atrocities that doesn't change the overall mass killings. Like, it's pinpricks against 
tidal wave of hate, a tidal wave of violence. They didn't work against the Germans too, because there actually were a lot of um, ethnic groups in the Soviet Union that were against the uh, communist leadership. If I'm if I'm if I'm not mistaken, Hang on. like when when I read a lot about like the invasion of 1941, like a lot of uh, some a lot of groups in a, in a lot of um, areas like in the Ukraine or some of the Baltic states initially welcomed the. Uh, the German invading Germans as liberators because they didn't have a lot of they didn't have a lot of uh, love towards the uh, Soviet Union itself. Yeah, the satellite state were were oppressed by the Soviet Union. I uh, can't really deny that. Mm-hmm. Go back and forth, but they weren't they weren't treated as good as like some from Russia. From they kind of had that issue, right? Like any any empire has that. But uh, yeah, they quickly learned that when the Germans came in, or the Wehrmacht of the Third Reich, they traded one oppressor for another. Was that intentional for the Germans, or did any of them say like, "Hey, maybe we should use the population against the Soviet Union. We should develop ties with them"? There might have been. I can't remember any specific names, but there might have been some little schools of thought. But the overall thing was. We need to slave, we need forced labor. The Slavs, you know, they're only good for labor, so we'll use them, we'll exploit them. And the hell with their uh, rights, their decency. Damn. Because they're like the second-class citizens in the eyes of the eyes of the Third Reich. Right. That's I, I know when a, a lot like initially they they shot they starved peasants and took them away, but then when they figured out it was going to be a more of a protracted war, they started rounding up a lot of civilians, sending them off to the work as uh, slave laborers in the uh, in greater Germany. Yeah, Timothy Snyder and Bloodlands talked about that. When the Third Reich needed food, they shot people. When the Third Reich needed labor, they conscripted people. Ah. I mean, it's still terrifying. And even of course, labor, like, you're given, like, maybe 500 calories a day on hard labor, and you, you die later. But it gave them some chance of life. Like get rescued or like wait till the war's end versus we need food so round up every every Jew in this town and shoot and get them all down. I would like to mention that there was anti-Semitism in Poland and the Baltic states because in Masters of Death there are cases where mm-hmm. the Einstein most of the Einstein's group in, but they kind of like not even coerce like just mm-hmm. go the local civilians in Lithuania to kill, like, the Jewish population of a certain town. Mm-hmm. Some of this is anti-Semitism. Some of it is, like, they connect, they say, oh, like, the Jews are responsible for the Soviet Union, they're all Bolshevists, and Bolshevists are our enemies, so let's kill them. Uh, damn. It didn't help that when the NKVD let, let those areas, they kind of, like, panicked and had, like, a mass killing spree. Like any ends of the Soviet Union, they they shot and handed like a prison and, and murdered. Yeah, that so that would you, not. Um, you, have, you, you have that. You have the anti-Semitism. You have like the. It's not even tenuous. It's like uh, the more I read, like the more like the connection between like the whole idea of like Judeo-Bolshevism is kind of like a bullshit concept. Mm-hmm. Being like messed to death in Bloodlands. What I read. The Jewish populations in Soviet territory still suffered, like they they, they were still treated like second-class citizens. Right. So, it's just you know emotions, a lot of hate. So like logic and reason that goes out the out the fracking window. As it usually does in most of these cases. 
I do want to mention, like, in July of 41, like, one month after Barbarossa starts, uh, a bunch of Polish uh, townsfolk around this place. I'm going to butcher the name, but it's uh, Jed Wabne, mm-hmm. uh, A-E-D-W-A-B-N-E. They force a bunch of Jewish people into a barn and lay on fire. Uh. This is a point of contention in Polish history because I've seen some comments. I've seen like these far right guys say, "Oh, it was the Nazis that did that. And the Polish citizens did nothing." And you got survivor testimonies saying, "Well, no, it was the Polish townsfolk. It was those Polish civilians that did that." I I've seen a little bit of that. I've seen um, it's still a big thing in modern day modern day Poland. I think was it last year, the year before the. Uh, I read something about, like, the Polish president, like, revoking some some rumors about the Holocaust. Maybe you know about more than I do. Something like that. Like, there was some big controversy over there about, like, remembering the Holocaust. I think if it was critical of the Polish experience in the Holocaust, like, collaboration was, yes. a, big, was a big taboo. And it's not just limited to Poland. I mean, you're talking in France... Like, everyone was a part of the resistance, but nobody wants to talk about the collaboration. No, everybody, well, no, it's still a big issue today. Honestly, it, if, like, for American perspective, it's the same thing, like, um, oh, everyone was a patriot back in the revolution. Nobody wants to talk about, like, the, the loyalists, the losers, the, the ones outside with the British. Probably the closest thing I can think of from an American viewpoint to get, like, modern-day perspective on that. Because you probably seen it where we all want to talk about like the patriots and the uh, the heroes, the heroes that fought against tyranny. Nobody wants to talk about like the people that sided with those that considered tyrannical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I, I think it's the same thing. And yeah, you're right. Every every nation has its own dark history about that. Yeah. So that that happened in Poland. That happened in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. It wasn't widespread. Like there are civilians in the occupied territories protecting Jews at the risk of their own life because if they're like caught or associated like they're shot out of hand right but to say that, that never happened like there was no collaboration that's a lie you can't really cut you can't really deny that what about the POWs from the Red Army that were picked up uh, like in the first few months it's like close to 3 million correct so if you remember that hunger plan by the end of 1941, by telling the German army stalls outside Moscow, mm-hmm. there's roughly 3.3 million Soviet troops in captivity, taking these big encirclement battles. Mm-hmm. By the spring of 1942, over 2 million are dead, Damn. either through starvation or through exposure. Because the Germans, like, they knew ahead of time what's going to happen. Like, we need all the food, so they gave nothing or very little to the Soviet prisoners. They gave nothing. Like, a lot of these prison camps are built without adequate shelter. Mm-hmm. Basically, like, open beds in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. There's photographs of, like, Soviet troops, like, emaciated. And you got, like, freaking Heinrich Himmler. He's head of the SS. He's got that little fracking uh, rat look on his face, looking at the, at the troops. And you can see this guy's, like, skin and bones. Yeah, the, the rat stash. And, yeah, they knew. They knew it was going to cause a lot of death. So... As much as to be said of, like, if you were an allied or American POW in a Japanese prisoner war camp, it's like a 25% chance you'd die at the end of the war. Yes. Or worse. And, like, you, you can't deny 
what happened in those POW camps, that was terrifying and, and, and terrible. But, and in the Soviet Union, like, if you were a prisoner of 1941, if you were, if you were like a Soviet POW, mm -hmm. or, yeah, a German prisoner of war camp, that's like a 58% chance you're going to die before, like, the summer of 1942, just like from starving and exposure, disease. Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is like this is the numbers that I want to impress on the audience because, like I said earlier, 440,000 uh, U.S. war dead mm -hmm. in the entire war, over 2 million Soviet dead in the first year alone, and the war is not even over yet. No, you got like four more years to go. Three more years to go. Yeah, and, and like the German Wehrmacht, they are complicit by and large. I will mention in September 41, after the Wehrmacht takes Kiev, mm -hmm. there are explosions in some state buildings. Uh, I think it was like left by the NKVD. Mm -hmm. Some Germans are killed because these are as barracks, so like a headquarters. So basically, the Jews were blamed in Kiev. Was like, and honestly, like a lot of these like mass killings, like. They use like the flimsiest of pretexts. So even if like nothing happened, oh, we gotta take care of this with the partisans. Like we <laughs> secure. So like, see on the records, it's like like this, the force chip. Like they just had to kill because of, of, of the ideology. Mm -hmm. In two days' time, about thirty thousand Jews in Kiev were murdered in this ravine called Babi Yar. Thirty thousand. That's the size of Caledonia County, where I lived during the winter. Oh, man. That's more than double the amount of Stafford Springs, back home in Connecticut. Yeah. And that wasn't just the Einsatz group, and they did not have the numbers or the bullets to do that. Those numbers only could have come if the regular here gave logistical support. Yeah, so I want to impart that the Einsatz group never could kill that many like Jews, undesirables during their operations if the Wehrmacht wasn't giving them either logistics, communication, or even manpower support. That's yeah, that's uh, something that nobody likes to talk about. So this is a whole new war altogether. It's a war of ideologies, a war of mass killing, a war of tragedy on a scope that I may hope never happens again. Although, I don't know, let's see how this year turns out. We'll see, man, we'll uh, see. If it's, if it's one thing humanity's good for, it's repeating it, is rhyming with itself. Yeah. Now let's go back to the gates of Moscow. The German army stalls. The Germans kind of figure, all right, we're going to stay put. We'll try again next spring. They don't believe the Soviets can do a counterattack, mm -hmm. but they do. The Soviets have done counterattacks earlier, but the gates of Moscow is where, like, the biggest one hits. Mm -hmm. It hit Army Group Center. The Soviets are slowly learning, um, like, how to, how to fight the Wehrmacht, how to fight this new war. Ultimately, this counterattack doesn't succeed for a couple of reasons. Uh, they tried too big, like they still have problems coordinating, communicating. Mm -hmm. Stalin wanted it much bigger than what like the Red Army could actually afford to do. Yeah, it was capable of. But it still scared the shit out of the Germans. Uh, Army Group Center almost got destroyed <laughs> in the winter. It went outside Moscow. 
the generals wanted to like retreat and Hitler one of the few times he was right said don't like he gave an order stand fast <laughs> like a lot of these men a lot of these units don't have the capacity to, like bring heavy equipment they're already in prepared positions mm -hmm. but if they try to retreat they're going to be caught up without their equipment without so, Presently, Armor Group Center takes a lot of losses. They actually hold the line in uh, 41. Mm -hmm. And the two sides will kind of do some permanent attacks, but things don't flare up again on land until the summer, spring summer of 1942. And both sides, like, the Soviet Union's given up for total war. They have been since day one. They're getting mm -hmm. their men mobilized. They move a lot of their factories out east to, like, build tanks and equipment. Yes, yes, they have. But Soviets, the Soviets do a lot to get geared up, more so than the Germans, initially. The, the, I think the, the Germany doesn't really go into into total war production until 1943. Yeah, it's kind of like the big problems with the German uh, Third Reich's mindset. Um, the Soviets start getting, like, gain some lend lease, although not until, like, 42, 43 really comes, really comes, like, uh, impactful, but they'll be getting supplies from, like, uh, Marmansk, the, the Arctic convoys. Mm -hmm. And yeah. German, like, the Germans, their playbook is offense, offense, offense. They don't really know how to play defense, so they'll try again in the summer of 1942. We'll, we'll call that Case Blue or, or uh, Fall Blau. Fall Blau. And by this point, too, uh, it was like the day, like the day, or the day, or the day after the Soviets launched their counteroffensive in, in front of Moscow, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and draws America into into the war. And then a few days after that, Germany declares war on America. A lot of people think it's stupid. According to Fritz and Hitler's mindset, well, we're gonna fight the Americans anyway, so I might as well declare war now. The Japanese will hold will hold them busy until we take out the Soviets. Yeah, in, in hindsight, it looks stupid, but in his mindset, there's some logic, but he was proven mistaken. And that's where we end up in uh, 1942, I think, in, in Fall Blau, which is probably going to be uh, another podcast, another, like, different podcast, because that, that is another whole big thing in and yeah, of cause, itself. because that's the whole Stalingrad area. Yes, if, if anybody knows anything about the war in the East or the Soviet Union, it's Stalingrad. That is probably like the be-all to end-all of battles in, uh, in, in the public mind. So, I won't put too much numbers, but I will say that Operation Barbarossa, although mm -hmm. these successes are, oof, look all these numbers, look all this territory we're taking, all these prisoners are grabbed, mm -hmm. it's, it's still a failure. Uh, the fact that the Soviet Union is still in the fight by the end of 41, it mm -hmm. indicates that the campaign's a failure, the operation. Because Germany, the Third Reich was banking on this uh, big knockout blow, take out the Soviet Union in one go. The fact that they don't, and the war swings to war attrition, mm -hmm. that means uh, Germany ultimately is screwed because they don't have the manpower, the labor, or the material to like fight three major superpowers at once. So Barbarossa is a big gamble to end the war in one operation. Mm -hmm. It failed. When do you think that the operation actually ended? If you want to put a timestamp on it. I'd say maybe October 41. I mean, we did lump in Typhoon, just in my mindset. Like, it's part of the big campaign, summer campaign, to like go towards Moscow, go towards the, uh, like, take, take the, the big summer offense. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd say after Kiev. Okay. 
like they have to when the Germans have to wait get resupplied and the Red Army's still intact like it's taking losses but they're still fighting okay and it's probably the point where like gosh oh, shit like this isn't going the way we want it to go hmm. oh, that, that, that's good um yeah, I'll think... give some numbers. I think mm-hmm. overall the Soviets lost around four million men killed, wounded, captured, missing. Is that just from like from the military itself? I think from the military. Um, I mean, the civilian casualties I, I can't remember, but it's astounding. Like the, the Soviet Union's gonna lose around twenty million, twenty-five million dead mm-hmm. by the war's end. Just yet, yeah, if you look at the casualty rates. Uh, the, like 1941 is like a bad year for the Soviets. Like that's when it was a most amount of men. Yes. Soldiers. For the Germans, um, in 1941 they lose over 300,000 dead. I mean, compared to the Soviets, that doesn't seem like much, but that's like 10 percent of the combat strength of the Austria. That's not counting wounded, captured, or missing. So... Big numbers for each side. Yes. This, especially since the first two years, the Germans never took anywhere near that amount of casualties, like 50,000, before they, they kicked off of Barbarossa. And then, other things, fighting the British, fighting the French. Then in the fall of France was like that. Yeah, so these numbers show that this is going to be a much bigger war than the Wehrmacht can take, take. What do you think? Any final thoughts that you want me to impart on the audience? Nah, I think that's good. I think, like, I think we talked about, like, the ideology, ideology, we talked about, like, the, the big, like, the big, the big picture. I think for us, we just want to get, like, the big picture out to people, tackle some of the myths that we have, like, you know, it, it wasn't just, like, the, the cold or the numbers to stop the, to stop the Germans, uh, Hitler was, Hitler, while evil, was not a complete madman that a lot of people may amount to be, and we tackled like the the myth of the German army about like the clean Wehrmacht in uh, in World War Two. I mean, yeah, I mean, I grew I grew up on the same stories, you know, like oh, it was only the SS of the Nazis that did, that did the atrocities. The German like the German army was clean, and you know, reading more about this, I'm like that's not exactly the case. I mean, it's never gonna be the case. It's not. It's not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm still learning. I know I missed a lot of stuff as we do this podcast, but we're coming up on two hours, and I don't want to like drown in all the scholarship. I will leave a couple of books out just like to recommend to the visitors, mm-hmm. of the audience. Uh, one of the books I used is called Austkrieg: Hitler's War of Extermination in the East by yes. Stephen Fritz. I read it. It's a great book. He covered both the military, the economic, and the political landscape of the. More in the East, mm-hmm. kind of like all together. There's also Richard Overy's um, Russia's War. Russia's War. That's good. It's like from the 1990s, so it's a little old, but it still pulls it pretty well. You've got the books of uh, David Glantz. He's like a he's like a god in like the uh, probably the, the U.S. Army. He's a retired military colonel, right? Yeah, like he just re- he just writes like a crap ton. He goes into the he goes deep into the details in the archives, and he's done a lot to help shape the modern scholarship of the Eastern Front. Him and Jonathan House, I think they teamed up in a few of the, those books. Yeah, so I I recommend him. Uh, David Stahill is another one. He has, he has done a PhD on Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. 
I've listened to some of his podcasts, uh, his lectures, and he's good. I'm currently reading through. I got the audio audio books on his uh, on the Kiev. His stuff on Kiev. Uh, I'm gonna jump into a book you gave me to read too, by Geoffrey P. McGargy, who is a let's see, applied research scholar at the Center for the Advanced Holocaust Studies for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. So he's pretty high up there, in in the, in, in this in this uh, scholarship. The book's called War of Annihilation: Combat and Genocide on the Eastern Front, 1941. It's a shorter book for people, only about 150 or so pages. But it does cover a lot of, like, the myths. It, it covers about, like, the genocide, the uh, political aspects of Barbarossa. It doesn't just talk about the military part. Because I think, I think for, like, us, like, us, like, history lovers, like, people who love about war, we tend to focus a lot, maybe too much, on solely the military portions of, of war, but never include, like, the, the social issues, the, the political issues, the economics... Because they're all wrapped in together, like, you know, for example, like, you know, you could have, you could have, like, German generals like Heinz Guderian say, oh, Hitler was a, was stupid trying to go to the Ukraine, not Moscow first. And you could say, yeah, like, no, like, Guderian's right, he's a general, he's talking about, like, Hitler was a madman, why would he, why would you go to, why would you, why would you want to go to the Ukraine instead of Moscow? And it's only when you, like, kind of focus in on the other parts of it, too, that you kind of see, like, alright, Hitler may have been evil, but... He also knew that Germany needs resources, so they need food and oil and stuff. So all that is in the Ukraine or in the Caucasus. So that's why he sent he wants to send most of his army there. And the German generals, while technically great, maybe have missed the big picture about what is going on. I think a lot of them thought, like, yeah, it's like France. We take Paris. We took we took Paris. We feed the French. We take Moscow. We feed the Russians and the Soviets. And this is not. Exactly, just exactly the same thing. Yes, as more as like Guderian, like Eric von Manstein, mm -hmm. I still say read them. They're still a good source because it gets them the mindset. I will say be careful and do not take it as gospel. Yeah, because it has turned out that they did make fabrications. They omitted stuff because memoirs. You're looking back on events and like all humans. We don't want to admit like we did. Bad. I would recommend to people that any historical figure try to read their diaries or like the letters they wrote in around the same time as an event, like memoirs. The written, like again, the written years afterwards, and it's like, how do I make myself look good, or how do I, you know, reinterpret this? Diaries, however, are a little more up to date. They're a little more, uh, like the the, the to, to me, like my bullshit detector isn't going off as much as I. Reading a diary versus reading a, a memoir 10 years later. There is one more book I want to recommend, mm -hmm. and that is titled The Wehrmacht History, Myth, and Reality, written by Wolfram Witt uh, from Germany. It has been translated into English, mm -hmm. and it does tell a lot of the myths of like the clean Wehrmacht myth out in the East. It's also where I found the story of Anton Schmidt, hmm. how he rescued over 250 Jewish civilians from death, how he was executed, because they were a traitor. And very recently, back in the early 2000s, the New German Army, things like the, the Brunsbeer or something, mm -hmm. like that's all I have a lot of wrangling back and forth, because 
trying to combat the Wehrmacht myth is hard because a lot of like current German families, like they had someone in the Wehrmacht, like it was big, it was a big military organization. Yeah. It says they confronted the dark side of their past. And I think like there's still some problems, but they've done a pretty good job of like trying to like kill back the myth, the mythos. And I think back in the 2000s, Schmidt's name was given to a military base that was formerly named after a Wehrmacht general, like a high command general. So they named it after a soldier who didn't take lives, actually saved lives. Perhaps we should do something similar in the United States with the whole issue well, of... Well, I want to do a video about that on Facebook, but with the whole thing being right now, like... I didn't think it'd be worth a damn. Oh, renaming the ba army bases and then you have to Confederate generals? I still say keep Fort Bragg because thanks to Bra Bragg's efforts, the war in the West went in the Union favor. <laughs> Old Braxton Bragg himself. Yeah, a bit of a... There's some gallows humor, but uh, maybe I'll do something like that. It's like just a quick one on Facebook, just like a live video saying, hey, you know, here's like some possible ideas. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, I was looking at Facebook, when I thought about this, like, the Facebook is still a hotbed of, uh, that you're either on one side or on the other, or you're, on, you're on the other. I, I got rid of my Facebook, dude, I'm gonna be off it for a long time. Yeah, it's like a, it's like the Western Front, No Man's Land, the trenches. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which, I think we'll mention that when we can do our, uh, Civil Unrest podcast, Civil, you know, Disobedient, dis yeah, Civil, Civil Unrest podcast. Yeah, so that's all I got for Barbarossa. Uh, I think we should mention just a few like YouTubers that we like or we rec want to recommend to people if you don't like reading books. Like uh, again, like check out the World War II uh, hit, like YouTube channel, like the great, the same guys that did the Great War. I think it's Time Ghost History. I think is the main mothership. Indian Idol, Spartacus, and oh, uh, I forget the, the the lady's name who does like the war, the war, the home on the home front. Yeah, she's cool. She is cool, yeah. And you got, like, Jesse Alexander narrating the Great War past 1918, which is awesome. I just watched the Peasants' Uprising to, this morning. Oh, I recommend the Soviet-Polish War, too. Yes. Um, there's a couple of other YouTubers you want to, like, shout out or just, like, recommend to people. Like, Military History Visualized. He's a German YouTuber. I don't know his name on the top of my head. But he does a lot of, like, the... The myths about like the Wehrmacht, the Wehrmacht, the World War II myths. He's big into World War II. Check him out. Uh, I will warn you though, like nothing against him. His accent can be a little hard to read. You just have to like really focus and pay attention what he's what he's saying. It's a pretty thick accent, but he's got some great content. Yeah, and uh, well, there's Tick. Yeah, Tick T I K. He's done a lot of videos on the Eastern Front. He cites his sources. He's done some great documentaries about Army Group North and the Baltics, or Stalingrad is his current project. Battlestorm, uh, yeah. Operation Crusader. Mm -hmm. He'll also do like videos about like going after myths, like how like, the Germans, oof, Panzers, arriving in the sunsets. Mm -hmm. It was a madman. Uh... Stalin's special order two two seven, but not not one step back. Yeah, that was a little bit of an eye opener. Mm -hmm. Or um, ask ask him what's his the most accurate movie, and if you say Enemy at the Gates, he'll uh, freak out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we recommend those guys again. Ticks like T, 
capital T, lowercase I, K. We like him. We, we, we think he's really good. So, uh, Tick, by chance, if you ever, like, if you ever, like, watch this, you know, we love your content, man. Keep it up. Keep, keep, keep up the good fight. I also work at Potential History. Yes. He, like, edutainment, like, education and entertainment, because mm-hmm. he doesn't, he'll mention his sources, but I won't, like, it's not like a full bibliography, and it'll be, like, a lot more, uh, funny. Yeah. A little, when he can. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does some of Barbarossa, and basically kind of the same things. Uh, Germans, like, didn't plan it correctly, and, like, a lot of people explore a lot of the myths. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's those, it, those myths that people need to understand. His big thing are tanks. He talks about the elephant tank, how it caught, caught on fire <laughs> in a curse because the damn thing was so heavy from the engine. It caught on fire. King Tiger the Heavy. Yeah. So I think it's all the YouTubers I can think of. Anybody else? I, I think that's it, man. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up. I want to say, guys, thanks for following and listening to us. Uh, again, I, I know we're... we're Everyone in some capacity or form is going like different forms are going through a, a difficult time right now, and we don't want to take that away from people. But um, we still do want to talk about stuff like this, even if it's eighty years in the past, because you know we still find it relevant, and we, we still find the fact that you know we have to combat these these myths and like these hidden his this hidden history that we need to discuss. And I think Austin, you can probably agree with me the same way that. Like every nation, including ourselves, has a difficult time confronting the issues we have of our past. We do. I do want to, like, this war, millions of people died. Mm-hmm. It still shapes public memory and policy and how countries view each other today. The big reason why I read about the Eastern Front and the Holocaust mm-hmm. is I wanted to combat the. Um, Holocaust deniers, the, like the top tier werewolves. Yeah. The Nazis. Oh, pretty much. The neo Nazis. Also, I want to take a crack shot at David Irving because he's a piece of shit. Yeah, David Irving is probably one of the worst historians you can think of, even not a historian anymore. A lot of the myths. Uh, he's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. The sad truth is, I keep finding people calling his work. And it's up to me to, like, point out to them, and I'm not, not going to bother, like, it, it, it's freaking YouTube. Yeah, even though he's been discri- he's been discredited publicly for the last 20 years. Just like, oh no, Irving had the truth. Yeah, unfortunately, if it's what i found is, is people interpret the truth a lot differently, depending on their view, on their beliefs. They do. I want to mention, just watch out for the whataboutisms. The whataboutisms? I found that when you confront the, the Holocaust down the Holocaust saying it happened, they'll say, well, what about Dresden? Well, what about Dresden? <laughs> uh, Dresden, we might, maybe we could do a little mini podcast. If we want to do more World War II podcasts, if you guys are interested in that, like, I know World War II is still big in, in public memory, like, let us know. We can always uh, get out more of our World War II history books. We got a bunch lying around. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Also, so how much time we how much time do we have left? A few minutes. Like a minute. Like we're going over the thirty minute mark, so I think we need to wrap it up. <laughs> All right. So there's that. Um, I'll continue to read about the Holocaust Eastern Front. 
I am hoping to get an internship somewhere, not internship, like a volunteer role, mm -hmm. somewhere, just talk, just about that so I can put this to good use, but, uh, but that's all I got. That's all I got here, dude. Um, again, viewers, thanks for listening. If you got any questions for us, I am going to try to update the um, Adventure Geeks website on Wix because I'm not going to be on the the fan the Facebook for a while. I won't have access to the, the our, our fan page, so I think I'm going to do more like on on this. Get our sources there so people can see it, just because we do like to tell people where we get our information from and try to go from there. Good idea. Yeah, but um, otherwise, that's all I got. So everyone, God bless. You know, stay safe. Everyone, uh, you know, just uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for listening. Yeah, bye, th for bye for now, guys. See you later.